The scripture reading is from Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Um, I am not Pastor David. If you haven't, David has much more hair than I do. So I wish I had David's hair. But <laughs> no. um, it's good to be here with you, um, bringing you the Word of God. Um, today we're going to be talking about Psalm 1. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I love the Psalms. Um, psalm 1 is probably the first Psalm I memorized as a Christian 32 years ago. And, um, and I think the reasons that we as Christians love the Psalms as a whole is because they, I think they resonate with the core of what it means to be human. You know, they, they address not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other, um, our issues with sin, our struggles with evil, just a host of things that when we come to them, they, I think they touch our hearts in a way that maybe many other aspects of Scripture don't. Um, and some of it's the beauty of the language, but also just the fact of there's just so much in the Psalms that resonate with our hearts that it's, it's easy to be drawn in and feel that you're experiencing and knowing God through, the, through his word. Not just you can't do that elsewhere, but in the Psalms, at least for me, it's a way that um, uh, it just has a special place in my heart. And I think within the, the Christian church, that's true as, as, as well, that for most of the Christian church's history, probably the number one read book in the Bible is, is the book of Psalms. Um, probably most of you will actually go to the Psalms during the course of the week. Um, I would be very surprised if not everyone here, if not everyone does that at some time during the week. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's important before we get into Psalm 1 just to say a couple things. One is that the Psalms were written for the covenant people, uh, for the, the people of Israel, and they were sung, generally they were sung in Israelite worship or recited out loud in worship. Um, and that's important for us to know because we often don't, um, when we come to Psalms, we don't think of them that way. We see them more as a personal devotion. But for Israel, they were done in, the, in, the, in corporate worship. Now, when we come to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, many scholars look at these two Psalms and see them as an introduction or a, as the gateway into the whole book of Psalms. And there's a reason for that. When these scholars go back and they look at this, these ancient manuscripts of the Psalms, they find Psalm 1 and 2, but they're not labeled 1 and 2. They're just attached to the front of the Psalms like an introduction to the book. And so this has led many scholars to think of Psalm 1 as a, excuse me, that basically Psalm 1 lays out how we are to approach and read the Psalms as a whole. And it's a reminder that true worshipers 
of God must follow his path as laid out in the scriptures. That is, these the Psalms 1 and 2 tell us how to read the Psalms as a whole. Now, as Karen was saying, my wife Karen, I also work with Hillside Center for Education, but um, last year we left the city for about nine months, and we actually came back in, 20, in September of 2020, and we left the city to go and raise some funds for this ministry out in Jamaica. And um, we moved to an area of the country uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, and Western North Carolina. So I, that's probably the, my most favorite place in all of America to live. I love Western North Carolina. I went to school there. I graduated from, I should say, I graduated from university there. I um, love the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love kayaking, whitewater kayaking, whitewater rafting, hiking, visiting all the mountain towns. There's probably nothing about Western North Carolina that I do not like. Um, but while we were there for these nine months, I decided that I was going to do something I'd never done, and that was to take up backcountry camping. So I hiked these day hikes all over the place in West North Carolina, but I decided, okay, we're here for nine months. I'm going to buy all the equipment that I need, and I'm going to go out into the backcountry off the grid, no people, so I'm going to survive by just what I bring in with me. And I'm going to live out in the backcountry three, four, five days and see how well I do. Now, I told my wife, Karen, about this, and she was like, I think that's great, Jim. Um, I'll meet you at the bed and breakfast when you're off the trail. Um, and I understand that because, you know, backcountry camping isn't for everyone. Um, it's pretty, can be intense. But one of the things I learned very quickly with camping, with this kind of camping, is that it's important that you have the right supplies, the right resources, if you're going to thrive in your backcountry trips. And in particular, I learned very quickly that the, your greatest resource to have is a map. And, and there's a reason for that. If you've ever gotten off the grid and, you, and you've hiked in these backcountry trails, you can be on a trail and there's all kinds of trails coming into that trail. So there's crisscrossing trails, trails that dead into that. And if you're not, and, and more often than not, I don't know why they do this, but those trails aren't marked very well. And so without a map, it's easy to get lost to get disoriented, to get turned around. And that's usually not a problem. You can end up hiking two, three, four miles out of your way and then realize, oh, I'm on the wrong trail. I need to, need to turn around and go back. But it, it can become a problem if you don't have the right resources with you um, because you could run out of food, you could get lost. It happens occasionally, rarely, but it still happens to this day. And the thing, I, the thing that became very well known to me is that if I didn't have a map, I was putting myself in danger. And that map was there for a purpose that I needed, whether it was on my phone or a hard copy of it, it was there to keep me on the right path. And if I wasn't on the right path, I was putting myself in danger. In a similar vein, Psalm 1 begins with this understanding that we're all on a path, or on a path of life. And according to the psalmist, we're either on the path that leads to life or a path that leads to destruction. The psalmist begins in Psalm 1 by contrasting these two paths of life with two people, the righteous and the wicked. And he's going to end this psalm by contrasting the outcome of these two paths and the outcome of these two people. So let's go ahead and dive into Psalm 1. Keep it in front of me so I can actually see it. Um, psalm 1 begins with this word blessed, which is basically, blessed just basically means an exhortation to right action, right? An exhortation to right action. And it's better translated as happy or joyful, which you sometimes will see in our more modern English translations or more modern English readings of this text. The Hebrew, this Hebrew word blessed can express deep emotion, 
so that it even can be translated as, oh, the happiness of the one who does not do these things. And this happiness that the psalmist has in mind is both inward and an outward state that transcends our circumstances as we walk on the path that's laid out for us, that God has laid out for us. And blessed in this context, like the Beatitudes of, of Matthew 5, is a description of the covenant community. And more particularly, it's a description of a person committed in faith to God and following God's plan or God's path. After this exhortation to right action, the psalmist presents a negative example that the righteous person is not to follow. This is the only time I do believe in the Psalms or anywhere else in Scripture where, or particularly in wisdom literature, where this, the writer starts out by, with a negative example of not what you're not to do before getting into what you should do. The, the psalmist describes the path of the unrighteous person in verse 1 by using three different English verbs, right? You see this in the text. We're told walk, stand, and sit, and all three of these verbs are used to describe a wicked person. And these three words seem to imply sort of this idea of a slippery slope of sin. You know, first you get this idea in the text that first a person is merely walks alongside the wicked while seeking counsel, then one stops and he's hanging out with sinners and receives their advice. And then lastly, he's sitting among the mockers or the scoffers, adopting their views and lifestyle. You know, a few years ago, um, I read, and I, actually with the pandemic, it's been more than a few years now. It's probably five or six years ago. I read um, John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and you, you, most of you, maybe many of you know this story. It's the story of the main character's name is Christian and he departs out on a journey from the city of destruction to the, the celestial city, to heaven. And in this story, Bunyan presents, presents Christian coming, encountering all kinds of obstacles, places, and people that attempt to lead him astray from the path that he's on. And when he starts out on this path with this burden, that sin, he's given a scroll that he's called to read. Eventually the sin falls off as he has faith in Christ and he's, he's, used, he's to use the scroll, the, which is the word of God, to help him along this journey that he's on, this path that he's on. And the interesting thing about the book, if you've ever read it, is that uh, sort of the unique names that Bunyan uses to describe this allegory of Christian on this journey. And we're told that on his journey, Christian comes into a place called the Slough of Despond. A strange name, but it corresponds to struggling with deep depression. Um, we're told later on that he comes into a city called Vanity Fair, which is representative of sin and sinful people who are opposed to God and his word. And then later, we, he comes to a hill called difficulty, right? Which again is a, a, the experience of the Christian life. The journey he's on is a difficult journey. These and many other aptly named places correspond to various life struggles while on this path to the celestial city. Christian also encounters, Christian the main character, also encounters some colorful characters, some colorful people on his way, on his journey. Um, one of them is called worldly wise men, and you can guess, this person is one who urges him to lead a practical, happy existence without religion, right? Then he comes across a young teenager named Ignorance. And Ignorance believes that living a good life is sufficient to prove one's religious faith, as being moral. And then later he comes across this person named Demas who simply tempts Christian to leave the path of, that he's called to with money, with wealth. In each case, Christian rejects their advice and counsel and stays on the path 
that was laid out for him. And like, just like Christian, we are all on a journey, just like Psalm 1 says, and we will encounter many obstacles on our way. You know, many of these obstacles are simply teachings and worldviews that our friends, maybe family, and our culture are advocating as paths to peace, success, or fulfillment. You know, you've been in New York long enough, you've heard a lot of these, these teachings, these worldviews, right? Uh, one of them I hear all the time, being the nature of the kind of work Karen and I do, is education equals success. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, it does, right? But no, it's, there's no guarantee that education equals success. Um, I, this week, actually, I was interviewing one of our tutors, 15-year-old high school student who's going to help with us by tutoring an elementary kid. And one of our questions for him was, what, um, what would you do if one of the kids you're tutoring was struggling with paying attention and getting his work done? And his answer was, well, I would tell him that, you know, that it's important that he does his work because if he's going to be successful later in life, he's going to have to get a good education. I was like, oh, thank you. That's a good point for my sermon right there. Because um, I hear it all the time in the city. And, I, and it's not just here. It's pretty much embedded within our culture. You know, another one that I heard when my son was at Townsend Harris, he struggled with all the time. Because it wasn't just coming from the students. It was coming from his teachers, which is that money means happiness. I'm going to go to college. I have a good job. And then I'm going to get lots of money. And I, then I'm going to be happy. Anybody ever hear that? I, probably. We hear it all the time, I think. And then I think maybe one that I used to hear a lot, and it's still out there, but it's now just sort of accepted, I think, which is that, you know, you, you have to be willing to compromise your values, your principles, if you want to get ahead in life, right? I think that's almost, on some level, just sort of embedded in our culture now. And very few people are going to question that. But here's the thing. Like Christian in um, Pilgrim's Progress, we are to reject the advice and the counsel of anyone or anything that would lead us astray from the path of life, from the path of righteousness that God has placed us on. The psalmist will continue in verse 1 by listing also now three categories of people that the righteous person's not to associate with. And you see these listed, right? You see he tells us not to associate with the wicked, with sinners, scoffers, or mockers, depending on your text. And just like the verbs that we talk, these English verbs, these words show a progression of movement into further sin and disobedience. The wicked, if you look at the Hebrew word, the wicked, the idea behind the wicked person is a person who in essence has committed a sin, one sin. The sinner is a person whose life is a life full of, um, who's committed many sins, who's living a life uh, of uh, wrongdoing. And often these two words, uh, sinner, and the wicked are used as synonyms in the Psalms. And so later in this text, in verse 5, you're going to see he comes back to these categories of people, but he only uses two categories. Uh, because, again, so throughout the Psalms, throughout, throughout the Psalms at least, wicked and sinners are used interchangeably. And the last category of people are these mockers or scoffers. And those are, those are people who are directly opposed to the righteous and belittle God in his ways. Again, the idea being pictured here is a progression of being thoroughly conformed to the attitudes, lifestyle, and worldview of the unrighteous. This doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't happen. We don't fall into this kind of pattern. Uh, rather, we actively choose to go down this path. Now, again, we might... We normally do that, right? As, as believers, we might normally do that incrementally, but little baby steps here and there. By making choices that move us away from God and His Word, towards unrighteousness and faithlessness. 
And that's what the psalmist is warning against, not to be like this group, these categories of people. There's a sense, though, like I said, that this psalmist is saying that the righteous should separate out from the wicked. That is, not even associate with them. And many faith communities take this perspective. I work with Islamic communities, and some Islamic communities don't want you associating with anyone outside of their community. Uh, the the um, Orthodox Jewish community, I do believe, is, is very similar to that. They don't want you associating with anyone outside their community. And even some Protestant uh, communities operate with that same mentality, that same understanding that where they discourage people uh, from associating with groups that are different than them. You know, it's interesting to note that this was the charge that the Pharisees brought against Jesus. In Matthew 9, verse 11, uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus and condemn him for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. That is, they are condemning Jesus because he's associating with the marginalized, with bad people within his uh, culture and, and people group. Paul also says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Or as the NIV states, and probably the way most of us hear it is, bad company corrupts good character. You know, I think on one level we know this to be true. That is, if we've lived long enough, we know this to be true. We've probably experienced it or know somebody that we could say, oh yeah, this person, this happened. They were hanging out with this group of people and they went this, down this path. Um, but I, but I think the question that we, that's before us right now, though, is how are we to square Jesus' teachings and ministry to sinners with what Psalm 1 seems to be saying? That is, that we're not to associate with sinners. An Old Testament scholar by the name of uh, Gerald Wilson gives us some insight onto how to deal with this question. He says that it's important to keep in mind that the psalmist is cautioning against adopting an attitude and lifestyle of the wicked, not some casual contact with him. So the premise here is adopting. It's not just showing that progression of sin, but it's ending up by adopting uh, the, the worst possible outcome, uh, taking on their lifestyle, taking on their, their worldview. The warning against is, choo is against choosing to follow the path of the wicked, standing with them and ultimately dwelling with them, becoming like them. As Christians, the thing for you and me as Christians is we are, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. And as such, that means we, we don't get the option of not choosing to associate. We don't get the option of pulling back from society and culture because we're going to model our life in the way Jesus has done his ministry, which means that we need to be engaged with sinners, with the wicked, uh, with mockers and scoffers of the gospel of, of Jesus himself. But I think it's important to know why we're doing that. We're not to be accepting of lifestyles, nor are we to be condemning. We're not to be adopting lifestyles and worldviews, but we're not to be condemning them. We're simply to be preaching the gospel in love, even as Christ modeled for us, to those who with different worldviews and different lifestyles than us. I think it's important for us as Christians to remember that, that it's not about condemning someone. Um, it's about preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel um, in love for that person made in the image of God himself. The psalmist continues in verse 2 and he, by turning his attention now to the righteous person. He's told us, you know, don't be like these people or don't be like this. And he turns his attention now to the righteous person who is blessed as he follows the path laid out by God. And this blessed person is described as one who delights, and you see this in 2, delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night. These are the essential characteristics of the righteous person. 
And these characteristics are to permeate the life of the righteous. Actually, verse 2 is the key verse for the Psalms, and for many commentators, it's the key verse for the entire book of Psalms. It's, in essence, the map for staying on the path of righteousness. The The psalmist tells us three things that the righteous person does to remain on this path. You you get this pattern of three, three, and three throughout this psalm. But three things that the righteous person needs to do to stay on the path that God's laid out. He says, "Delight delight in the law, meditate on it, and do this day and night. Now, John Piper says, the righteous and the wicked are separated by what they delight in, the revelation of God or the way of this world. So I guess then the question I'm having for us is, what does it mean then for us to delight in the law of God? For us to delight, what does it mean? You know, to delight in something means to enjoy it, to desire it. When we delight in something, it's not just cognitive, but it's also emotional, has an emotional connection as well. And when I delight in my wife, or you delight in your husband, you don't, it's not just intellectual, right? If it's just intellectual, it's, it's not delight, right? It's a contract. So the blessed person has actual, genuine joy and affection for the law of God. That's what the psalmist is telling us. There's genuine joy, genuine joy and affection for the law of God. But again, how can we delight in God's law? If you're like me, when I think of law, the first thing that comes to my mind is the book of Leviticus. And we all know what happens when we read the book of Leviticus. Oh my goodness, I just can't make way through this thing. This is just too hard, right? But I think it's important to keep in mind here that for the psalmist and for wisdom literature in general, the law, law can have two meanings. It can have a general meaning and a specific meaning. The specific meaning for Torah, which is the word translated law, and it simply means instruction. So it can mean Torah just means law, like what's in the first five books of the Bible. It could also, so it could also mean the first five books or just simply the word law as it's found in Scripture. But there's also a general meaning for law. It can also simply mean, most commentators will say, it can simply mean all of the Word of God, the entirety of the Word of God. So in this case, when the psalmist says to delight in the law, he's not saying go back to just the Torah and delight in it. He's saying, no, delight in the entirety of God's Word. That means the Torah, the prophets, and in this case, the Psalms, which are the very Word of God given for our instruction. So again, I'll come back to this question. How do we delight in God's Word? I think the simple thing is, is in order to delight in God's word, you have to delight in God, right? You have to take delight in the person and character of God. And so how can we delight in God's word? By delighting in God. Well, how can we delight in God? By delighting in his word. That means that we have to come to his word and read it in order to know him, to understand him, to be, become more and more like Jesus. And I want to encourage us this time of the year. Well, hold on, put a pin in that thought. I want to encourage you that when you start out with delighting in God's Word, and maybe you're struggling with it. I, I don't delight in God's Word every day, but it doesn't mean I don't read it. Um, but when you start out and you're struggling with it, then go to the Gospels. Go to the Gospels and start with Jesus. Because when you begin to understand God's love expressed in Jesus through his life, death, and, death, and resurrection, it's easier to begin to delight in what God has done for you begin to see his great love and compassion and forgiveness that's found in his son for all who have put their faith in him. You know, and the second thing I would say in, de- in learning to delight in the, in the word of God is, is learn the promises of God, right? Come to the promises, learn them, make them part of who you are, memorize them, 
right? I think we often forget this. I know that I do. But there are promises throughout Scripture that God has given to us, his people, promises not to forsake us, promises to help us in times of trouble, promises of compassion and mercy and forgiveness when we fail, you know, promises of faithfulness to carry us to the end, and a host of other promises. But take those promises that God is speaking directly to you, to his people, and make them part of who you are. It's much easier to delight in God and in his word when that word is part of who you are has become part of who you are. You know, we're in this period of Lent right now, and um, I think we're in the second week going into the third week of Lent, and we have about four more weeks, I think, is that right? About four more weeks before Lent ends and then we hit Easter. I, wanna, I don't know if you're part of the reading plan here, uh, the Bible reading plan here at uh, Ascension Church, but if you're not, it's a great time to sign up for it, a great time to start learning to delight in the Word of God by joining with others in this faith community to read together. Um, and I encourage you, if, you've, if you're not part of that, to do it. This is a great time. Lent's a great time. Maybe give up five minutes of your day so that you can read the Scriptures together. I just want to encourage you to do that. So to grow in this practice of delighting in the Word of God. And this is, there's no better time than now to start that now. You know, the psalmist continues in verse 2 by stating that the blessed person is one who not only delights in the Word of God, but he meditates on it. You know, to meditate then means not just to read God's Word, but that we are, in essence, to soak our minds and our hearts in it until it becomes part of who we are. You know, we're to be hearing it, we're to be reading it, we're to be studying it, we're to be listening to it, we're to be speaking it to ourselves until the great truths of the Word of God are pressed down into our hearts and catch fire, as Tim Keller has said in the past. Uh, that is, they become part of who we are, and they move us out of not just being readers, but now doers of that word. And the bottom line, though, here with this, with this um, idea of meditating is that most of us struggle not just with reading the word, but meditating on the word. Um, and I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with meditating, that's all right. Keep reading, and we'll get to the meditating part, but keep reading. Don't stop reading. But if you're reading God's word, then find time in your day to meditate on it to take a little bit of time to sit down and just to think about a verse you've read. Think about a characteristic of God. Think about a promise of God and work it out in your heart, in your own life, in a way that throughout the day that you're thinking on it, that it becomes, again, be begins to become part of who you are, uh, to change you and make you more and more into the image of Christ. And then the psalmist ends with this third point of, uh, for, the, for the righteous person is to he says to, met, to delight in the law and to meditate on it and to do this day and night. Now, that's, day and night is just a, a lovely Hebrew poetry form that means do this all the time. You know, there's, do, you need to be reading the, God, the, the Word of God all the time. Um, so, so for some of us, that means I do the daily prayers. Um, I'm not always consistent with it. So I pray some in the morning. I pray and pray and read in the morning, pray and read in the afternoon. But the point being is that you don't, is to be thinking about the word of God, meditating on it, where it's permeating your whole existence. That's what the psalmist is calling us to do. Now, again, we're going to fall short of that. We're not going to do that perfectly by any stretch of, uh, any stretch of that. But um, again, the, the, the call, though, doesn't change to come to the word, to know the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, and that through his word, he begins to change us and make us more and more into the image, more and more into delighting in who he is and in his character. 
So then basically the psalmist is saying the key to avoiding the counsel and advice and lifestyle of the wicked is to immerse yourself in the Word of God. Gerald Wilson says it this way, that the Word of God should so permeate our being that our lives take up residence on the path that God knows and that it sets us clearly apart from the wicked, from the sinners and the mockers of this Word. That is, reading the Word of God should change us. It shouldn't leave us where we are. And it's a slow, incremental process. What it brings us, it changes us from the, the sinners, those mockers, the wicked around us. Because, again, we follow, we're following um, the path of righteousness that Christ has laid out for us, or God has laid out for us. The psalmist is going to continue here in verses 3 and 4 with a simile. And, and this sort of this word picture um, that shows the result of delighting and meditating on the Word of God. So he says, hey, here's the, do these things, and this is what it's going to look like. If you do this, this is what it's going to look like. First, we're presented then with an image of a tree that God planted by, by water, which brings forth and its fruit and does not wither. And this picture is this tree has grown strong, and it's putting down deep roots into the soil, and it's sinking and spreading out its roots so that it's gripping that soil and so that it's standing firm. And this is true of the righteous. The psalmist is saying this is true of the righteous as they are rooted in the word of God. You're like this living tree, this evergreen tree that's put down deep roots in the word of God so that when the hardships of life, when the struggles of life come, you're going to be able to stand up and bear underneath it because you have deep roots in the word of God. It's through the word that we're made strong and steady to face the challenges of life. And I think it's important, too, in this text if, to, to notice this, that this tree is strong because it's been planted and tended by God. This is not some wild tree that's grown up. It's a tree planted and nourished by God. This reminds us that the life of the righteous and the path he is on is a life that will bear fruit because, because God is going to bring about that fruit as we are tied to him, as we are rooted in him in his, through his word. And more specifically, he says he's been, we've been planted by, what, water, right? And then Jesus will pick up that same theme, say, streams of living water, right? So we're, we are tied and we are grown and our relationships are deepened as we're in the Word of God and more specifically as we're focused on Jesus as the living water. And then the psalmist continues in verse 4, and we're told that the wicked, again, this other word picture, the wicked are like chaff that is blown away. They are compared to the part of the wheat plant that is just blown away in the threshing process. Now, you know this, you're threshing wheat. I've never threshed wheat, but I've seen pictures of it. Um, but in the process of threshing wheat, you're picking it up and you're throwing it into the air. And the part of the wheat that's inedible, it's not even good enough, you can't even get it to animals, it's just blown away into the air. And it's, the psalmist is saying, look, the wicked, they lack permanence. They lack stability. They're here one minute, one minute and then they're gone. And that's sort of the picture, the contrast of the picture between the wicked and the righteous. One's this flourishing evergreen, and the other is just brown chaff that's just here one minute and gone the next. The psalm draws to a close in verse 6 by comparing these two outcomes of those who follow the path of life with those who follow the path of destruction. You know, those on the path of, of righteousness are known by the Lord, we're told. Being known by God then means that the righteous intimately and, are intimately and personally known as his children. Not only does God know the righteous, he knows the way of righteousness because he's walked that way already before us in Christ. 
He knows all the surprises and twists and turns that the path will take because Jesus has already blazed a trail that is safe and secure for us to follow behind. This can't be said of the wicked. They are neither known by God nor guided by him through his revelation. Their final outcome, the psalmist says, is a path that leads to their demise, to their destruction. Now, this psalm has so many parallels in the New Testament, and I just want to touch on two of them. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And Jesus is saying that there are only two paths in life, like the psalmist. One is the way of the cross that leads to life and glory, while the other is the way of destruction, which is the broad and popular way that leads to death. But then how do we find this path of life that Jesus has blazed for us to enter into it? Jesus gives us the answer to this question at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, a few verses, 10 verses or so down. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand." The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Look, the wise man built on a foundation of solid rock that enabled his house to stand in the midst of the storms of life. Not so the fool, or not so the wicked. He built his foundation on sand, and when the storms of life rose up against it, his house fully collapsed. Do you see the only difference between the fool and the wise man or between the righteous and the wicked is their attention and response to Jesus' words, that is, their attention to the word of God. Either we hear and respond to it, that is, we do what it says, or we, pay, or we don't pay attention to it, nor do we do what it says. So Psalm 1 comes to an end with this question, what path are you on? Is it the narrow path of faith? in Christ rooted in the word of God? Or is it the wide path rooted in human wisdom? Let me go ahead and pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your word that does reveal who you are, your character, not just what you require of us, but it lets us know you. And Lord, I pray that as the psalmist has made clear, that we who are on the path of righteousness would be men and women who delight in your word, who meditate on it, who, who contemplate it, who apply it and do what it says, that we would be hearers and doers of your word. And Lord, I know that we struggle, we fail, uh, we don't um, abide in your word as we ought. And so we just thank you for Jesus, who's made it possible through his life, death, and resurrection, even when we fail and fall short of this mark, uh, to live in eternity with you. And yet we pray, God, that you would help us to be people who delight in, in your very word. In Jesus' name, amen.